mental set. Two words that could revolutionise criminal detection. Sunday Standard, July the 5th, 1981. In what follows, the original newspaper article mentions that it was based on an interview about a report I had written with restrictions to its publication by the government department that had commissioned it. I no longer have a copy of the report. It focused on the recently solved case of what had become known as the Yorkshire Ripper murders. It discusses the nature of mental blinkers or mental set and proposes ways of reducing its sometimes serious consequences. A later more popular term was mindset rather than mental set. Ironically, the article also demonstrates in a totally unintentional way my own crushingly obvious mental set in hindsight. Throughout, my language implies my perceptions as treating all social actors as male, doctors are male, managers are male, lost toddlers are male, parents searching for lost toddlers are male, and so on. And so I stand rightly convicted of carrying with me a dominant mental set, the focus of the report and which influenced my thinking and writing at the time. Here is the extended interview with a reporter from the Scottish newspaper. The Home Office is studying a report which claims the Yorkshire Ripper could have been caught in 1978 and four lives saved if detectives on the case had been trained in newly developed creative thinking techniques. It was compiled by 39-year-old Dr. Tudor Rickards, the lecturer in creativity at the Manchester Business School, where he applies the techniques to teach top management in British industry new approaches to problem solving. The following is an extract from his report which could revolutionise traditional police attitudes towards criminal investigations. Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, was not caught earlier because of a well-known problem that besets inquiries conducted under great stress, a problem known as mental set. A consequence of mental set is that the person or group involved enters a vicious circle of incorrect assumptions, which leads to a failure to resolve the problem, which leads in turn to a greater level of stress and consequently even greater levels of blinkered thinking. The Ripper squad could point to the incredible weight of information involved. They had to sift through 32,000 written statements, more than 5 million alleged sightings with conflicting identikit descriptions. They may argue with some justification that with the benefit of hindsight, the clues pointing to Sudcliffe are much clearer than at the actual time when other clusters of clues pointed just as convincingly to hundreds of others on a list of prime suspects. Nevertheless, the investigation shows classic signs of mental set and deserves the closest attention, which could well be valuable to detectives at the moment in Atlanta, Georgia, engaged in a similar mass murder investigation. Psychologist Mark Brown is a broadcaster and management consultant who has made a special study of the phenomenon. He describes it as a universal characteristic of people 
selectively paying more attention to some types of information than to others. This differential selection of information has important consequences. No doubt in prehistoric times it helped our ancestors in hunting and escaping predators. Today you can see it in operation when a distraught parent is seeking a youngster lost in seaside crowds. The parent will be able to pick him out from swarms of people the moment his gaze falls on a distant profile. There seems to be a heightened sensitivity to important and familiar information for this to work, but we have to lose something else in the process. We tend to lump together as positive some sightings that are actually negative, so that if the child was wearing red rompers, he may well be seen several times whenever some other child wearing red comes into view. The result is that we do not risk registering as negative in reality what is positive. It's a form of pattern recognition that also explains other things, such as the motorist who is thinking of changing to another make of car and suddenly finds the road seems full of that particular model. It may even explain the old joke about owners looking like their dogs. We notice confirming evidence and reject those which do not convict our belief. At election times, both left and right-wing politicians become furious with the BBC for biased reporting. This is an indication of mental set in which each side is oversensitive to the number or lack of items that fit their assumptions or, or beliefs. I have to say that that evidence is, re is still repeated today in the bias towards the BBC felt by political reporters. Work at the Manchester Business School into the nature of industrial innovation and creativity has unearthed many examples of behaviour that can be explained by the theory. In some of my first work, I came across the case of a prison malingerer who developed symptoms of illness to avoid duties. This became so predictable that the medical staff started taking his complaints with a pinch of salt. And when one day he described symptoms of peritonitis, the diagnosis was that there was nothing wrong with him. He almost died. I've since found instances of what I call the cry-wolf effect in classrooms, hospitals and industry. The disadvantages of this human process arise because of the tendency to overreact to signals that fit in with experience. Such false confirmations can further stimulate the feelings of those involved and we move into the dangerous and deluded condition that feeds off itself. In the Ripper case, Peter Sutcliffe was questioned by detectives several times in five years. One interview so convinced the detective that he filed a report recommending a follow-up by a senior officer. Unfortunately, the report was shelved. In October 1977, Sutcliffe claimed his tenth victim, and a five-pound note found in her handbag was traced back to his employers in summer 1978. Police revisited this firm and checked log sheets against dates and location of attacks. And in autumn 78, they returned again on the banknote trail and once again in January 1981. Their inquiries were concentrated on two men, one of them Sutcliffe.
the police may appear buffoons for not linking all these threads. I do not believe that to be so. Nor do I believe it was ever easy to make the correct deduction from the available evidence. The difficulty lies at the very heart of investigative procedures in the quest for logical deduced proof. A large number of possibilities are in theory reduced by illumination through evidence. In my work examining investigations of scientific, technical and social topics, I've grown very suspicious of having too much faith in the validity of this method. Strictly speaking, when you eliminate a subject by deduction, you are too often deciding that he does not fit your basic assumptions. This cannot help you to realise that the basic assumptions might be themselves in error, uh, leading you to a strengthening of the mental set and leads to rationalisations and failure to see other interpretations of the evidence. In the Ripper case, letters and a tape sent to the police convinced them that the Ripper came from Sunderland and spoke with a northeast accent. This may have been just the emotionally charged event which increased the mental sets of the, of the investigators. After the Sunderland tape, Olive Smelt, a survivor of a hammer attack in Leeds, told police she had been attacked by a man with a Yorkshire accent. Her evidence became an inconvenient fact for the investigators, and I think it was pushed out of their consciousness or rationalised as unreliable she had been attacked by someone completely different. It is a characteristic of mental set that the delusion feeds off itself. As the hunt for the Ripper focused incorrectly on the sender of the false tape and letters, the failure to make progress put the investigators under increasing stress. Beyond a certain level, the stress leads to this narrowing of perception and reinforcement of mental set. Eventually, you may be quite unable to see factors go against the ones you want to believe in. This has been found to cause serious problems in aircraft safety. Instances are recorded of pilots simply failing to notice instruments giving dangerous signals. They need to believe all is okay under stress. This diminishes the capacity to see the warning signs. Back to the Ripper case. The detective in charge, George Oldfield, later incurred a stress-aggravated illness. As a further illustration, consider Trevor Birdsaw a long-time friend of Sutcliffe, who had accompanied him on visits to red-light districts and had many causes for suspicion. The publicity given to the Sunderland tape changed his thinking and reassured him. I thought there was no chance at all it could be him. It destroyed the link, he said. He really wanted to believe in his friend's innocence so much, the evidence confirming his mental set completely overrode the evidence that could have threatened that view. The examples can be multiplied, even in this case. During the visits of detectives to Sutcliffe's workplace and the release of identikit pictures, Sutcliffe's workmates jokingly called him the Ripper. At some deeper than conscious level, truth lurked, but so frightening a truth that it emerged only as uneasy jokes. Again, they saw what they wanted to see. President Kennedy became convinced after the Bay of Pigs fiasco 
his advisers had deluded themselves into overlooking alternatives to the decision taken. Therefore, when the Cuban crisis developed later, he took simple steps to avoid mental set. He demanded analysis of several optional courses of action without telling his staff what his own views were. In this instance, blinkered thinking was avoided by eliminating the danger of White House advisers being induced to prefer options preconceived or expressed by Kennedy. They must be right, the President says so. How can the damage that might be caused to an investigation by mental set be reduced? As we've seen, it's more likely to occur under stress, leading to a narrowing of perceived options until there is a dominant, almost unshakable course of action. Facts that might challenge that are rationalised away. By rearranging investigation operations in a way that options cannot be dismissed out of hand in the interest of reaching a decision or reducing uncertainty, a less stressful climate can be created in which there seem to be several options still open to investigation. New training messages can also help. Such an approach is being tested successfully in industry to produce more imaginative thinking and problem solving, improved design of complex systems and effective strategies for change. In training industrial managers, we often find a rigid approach to problems which is set in past experience. Such managers, confronted with something that does not fit in their past experience, show signs of mental set. They tend to dig the hole deeper when they should be starting a quite different hole, a metaphor favoured by Edward de Bono, another guru of creative thinking. In one exercise, we ask our managers to consider a situation that had narrowed down the selection of machines from three models. Most groups spend all their time eliminating two of the machines. Few consider the possibility that to buy any of the machines may not be the answer, and that they should consider the assumption that they've been making in selecting from the three. In another exercise, managers are asked to tackle a problem which seems to have a simple solution. Some, not all, stop when they find the obvious solution. Seduced by the mental set that says, because they have one answer, they've solved the problem. They're at their most vulnerable when they think they have a solution. The purpose of creativity training is to induce flexible attitudes, so that regardless of stress, a manager will always think there must be other ways of looking at this, perhaps better ways. In America, this type of training has been started with groups of politicians, educationalists, scientists, administrators and senior executives. Even in Europe, where there is greater suspicion of applying psychology to improve managerial performance, there is a modest level of support for programmes aimed at encouraging clearer thinking and problem solving. I'm not suggesting that such programmes will remove the need for painstaking collection and collection of information in a scientific fashion, in large-scale murder inquiries, for example. But I do believe there is a strong argument for its widespread use. Creativity should be part of the training for anyone whose job may expose him to conditions of great stress, for it is in these situations when mental stress, set and false conclusions 
are most dangerous and most common.